The Apostle Paul knows and understands that for all Jews, and especially for unconverted Jews, these things that he's teaching about the gospel are very hard for them to accept. To dismiss circumcision as being of no applicable spiritual benefit, to suggest that law-keeping will never make you right with God. Although, of course, what Paul actually says is that, well, law-keeping can make you right with God. The problem is you have to be able to keep every single part of the law perfectly and completely for your entire life for law-keeping to make you right with God. And none of us can come remotely close to that because of our sin. But that's not the way the Jews have been taught to consider it. That the blood of Christ has become the once-for-all sacrifice and payment for sin. That Jew and Gentile alike must be made right with God by means of faith and only by God's grace. Well, for some Jews, this probably sounded like a totally new religion that Paul was teaching. And Paul can empathise with them. He was once one of them, and not just one of them. He was one of their leading lights. He was a violent persecutor of the church. So vehement had been his opposition to this teaching when we knew him as Saul of Tarsus. Even converted Jews, though, were finding it very hard to abandon so much of what they once held so dear. They'd never really understood their Old Testament scriptures as they should. They've never been able to see that this Christian gospel that Paul now has been converted to, that Paul now is preaching, that this gospel and the Christian church is actually the fulfilment of their Old Testament scriptures. They just haven't been able to see that for the most part. And Paul is very gracious with them and he's aware of their struggles. And so because of that, as he continues writing, from verse 27 of chapter 3 and then all through chapter 4, he doesn't really introduce any new doctrine as such. Instead, he, he kind of gives his readers, well, he gives them time to pause and consider and reflect and think through. And of course, that actually turns out to be for our benefit as well. Paul wants to bed these truths in. And so he brings a, a series of implications and illustrations uh, just to uh, really uh, bring home a summary of all that he's said so far before he continues any further. Uh, he can imagine some of the thought processes that are going through the minds of those who are reading this letter. Uh, many of them finding themselves thinking, well, if that's true, then, and then they're struggling to, to take hold of and, and accept the, the obvious conclusion that that truth must take them to. And Paul wants to guide them to those correct conclusions. And, and to assist them, he provides them with some implications 
and some illustrations. Yes, this is what it means. This is how to understand what I've been saying. So first of all, in the the final section of chapter 3, we have some implications. Uh, So Paul, are you you really saying this? Paul says, yes, and here are the three for this evening. Firstly, there's no place for boasting. There's no patting yourself on the back over what you believe you've achieved for God. Uh, We read of this account in chapter 19 of Matthew's Gospel. One came to Jesus and said, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to Jesus, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honour your father and mother, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? This young man is in a great quandary when he comes to Jesus. He's convinced he's done enough already. He'd like to think that he's done enough in doing the deeds of the law, yet there is still this nagging doubt. So he's come to check what Jesus might say. It might not come across as a particularly arrogant form of boasting from this young man, but it is boasting nonetheless, because it's wanting to have an assurance of faith and salvation which is based upon what I can say I've done. The kind of arrogance it can lead to is that typified by the Pharisee who Jesus asked people to imagine praying on the street corner in Luke chapter 18, and I mentioned him this morning as well. God, I thank you. I'm not like other men. I'm not like these over here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I possess. Oh, what I've done, what I've done, what I've done. This, actually, was the Apostle Paul back in his days as Saul of Tarsus, as he remembers himself in Philippians chapter 3. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, have confidence in the things you've done, I more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, no one kept the law like me, persecuting the church, oh, the zeal that I had, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Of course, Paul now knows that he wasn't 
But that's how he used to be. That's how he used to consider himself. That's how he used to view himself in the mirror every morning. That had been Paul's boast. Boasting being listing all of your credentials based upon what you've done, based upon everything that you've achieved and accomplished. But of course, Paul has now come to see that all of that has had to be abandoned as he takes hold of God's free gift of grace in Christ. All of him, nothing of me, to him alone, all the glory. I boast in one thing now, and that is Christ. There's no place for boasting, because none of us have or can attribute a thing to our being right with God. It's all of him. Secondly, this one God is the God and Saviour of all. The Jews typically had an unimaginably inflated sense of their own importance before God. They'd lost sight entirely that the privilege that they'd been granted was not to have received something which was for themselves only, but something of which they were to be stewards, which was for the whole world. The world in their eyes was a two-tier system with the Jews at the top and everyone else underneath. No, says Paul, God is just as much the God of the Gentiles as he is the God of the Jews. To be justified before God as a Jew requires you to be in exactly the same position as a Gentile who is justified before God. By faith, through faith, there's actually no difference, by the way, whether you look at by faith, through faith, is Paul trying to say something slightly different? No, it's just, well, many accept it's probably just a literary device so as not to repeat the same word in such a short space. By faith, through faith, it's the same thing. And Paul imagines the, the perturbed look on the faces of his Jewish brethren as they have all of their misconceptions challenged by what he's saying. And he also has in mind the amazed delight of Gentiles just like us. It includes us. It includes you. Just as much as anyone else in Christ. There is a two-tier system in this world, but it's not Jew and Gentile. It's justified or not justified. It's having faith in Christ or not having faith in Christ. It's being in God's grace or not being in God's grace. It's knowing this gift of God in Christ Jesus or not knowing it. It's possessing it or not being in possession of it. And all of you are in one of those two camps this evening. 
So there's no place for boasting. This one God is the God and Saviour of all. And thirdly, this does not throw the law of God out of the window. We establish the law, says Paul. This is confirming the law of God. The law shows us the depth of our sin. Because it shows us just how great and just how many are our transgressions of that law. Our breaking God's law is the basis of his righteous judgment over us. He knows us and sees us as those who have transgressed his law. And that is the basic substance of his wrath against us. We're lawbreakers. We're guilty of sin. We are guilty in our sin. God's law is central to his requirement for justice to be done. His law is the measuring line. His law is the, is the plumb line, the standard. The cross of Christ was necessary in order that the, de the demands of the law might be met because be met they must. Because the gospel doesn't throw the law out of the window. It establishes it and fulfills it in Christ. God doesn't wink at our sin. He lays it all on his own son and pours out his wrath against his dearly beloved one. Because of the law. It's under the law that we are condemned. It was under that same law that Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life without sin. How are our lives to be judged as sinful? How is Christ's life to be judged as righteous? Who gets to decide? How is that decision made? What rule of assessment is going to be applied to distinguish between sinful men and women and a perfect Christ? It's the law of God. And Christ fulfilled it perfectly at every point, every moment of his life. Whereas you and I, we've fallen flat on our faces every second of every day. It was to fulfill the requirements of the law that Christ died, the just for the unjust. It was to propitiate the demands of the law that Jesus stood in the place of sinners so that the Father could be satisfied that justice has been done. It is with that law in view that God declares the sinner to be justified in Christ Jesus and no longer condemned. And that same law of righteousness to love God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength and to love our neighbour as ourselves, which in that story of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus, of course, uh, Jesus doesn't even go anywhere near the first four commandments because he knows very well where that young man stands on those. He only mentions the other six in terms of our, our relationships with one another, to love one another of ourselves. And these laws now, as those of us who are in Christ Jesus, that now is written into our hearts, becomes part of us. 
The gospel works the way it does because of the perfect and unchanging law of God. Take away the law, there is no gospel. How do you measure anything without the law of God? Who gets to decide? Well, they do out there. And have you seen the mess they're in? Yes, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, says Paul, these are the implications of the gospel. Believe it, trust it, lean on it. So that's the first thing. And then as he goes through chapter 4, he talks about a few other things. He talks, first of all, about righteousness. It's an imputed gift of grace, not an earned reward. That's verses 1 to 8 of chapter 4. It's an imputed gift of grace. It is not an earned reward. Paul returns to the father of the Jewish nation, Abraham, as an illustration. Let me remind you again, says Paul, of what was written 2,000 years ago. Now that's 2,000 years ago at the time when he was writing 2,000 years ago. So that's 4,000 years ago for us. What does it say about Abraham in the very first book of Moses, Genesis? Now Paul is taking his Jewish audience to that which they revere the most to the Pentateuch, to the books of Moses, and to Abraham. For a Hebrew, this is take your shoes off, you're standing on hallowed ground. Abraham believed God, and it, his believing faith, it was accounted to him for righteousness in Genesis 15. And in verse 4, Paul makes it clear, this is grace. Abraham received the grace of God, stood in the grace of God. This is an unmerited, not worked for gift. This was, this account, was accounted to him. That phrase in Genesis 15, was accounted to him. This is the imputation of a gracious gift. This is not something that Abraham worked for or earned. Abraham received it on account of his believing, having faith in God. But he didn't actually do anything. He believed. He had faith. And in verse 5, Paul leaves his readers in no doubt that the language found in Genesis is describing Abraham being justified by God through faith by means of an imputed righteousness in exactly the same way that he's been explaining that Christians are justified by faith by means of an imputed righteousness. It's the same thing now as it was then. It's the same thing then that I'm preaching now, says Paul. This is no new religion. This is no new truth. This is that truth being revealed and fulfilled in all its glory and wonder. 
And of course, if you talk to a Jew about the promised Messiah, it wouldn't take them long to get round to the subject of King David. He was a thousand years after Abraham, a thousand years before Christ, so halfway between Abraham and the Lord Jesus on, on a timeline of Old Testament history. And the promises given to David about his descendant, who would be a, an eternal king over an everlasting kingdom. And after the likes of Abraham and Moses and Elijah also was held very dear, but David, well, hence the cries that rang out. Son of David, have mercy on me. Hosanna to the son of David. All the Jews knew that this was the promised line of succession to the, to the chosen Messiah. Well, let's think about David next, says Paul. It was exactly the same for him. And he quotes from Psalm 32. Not good deeds deserving of merit and reward. Lawless deeds, verse 7. Lawless deeds deserving of condemnation and wrath, just as Paul's been explaining all through chapters 1 and 2. It was exactly the same for David back then. But lawless deeds forgiven, sins covered. Well, covered by what? And covered how? Well, of course, covered by the blood of Christ, whose atoning death has paid for sins in full. No longer sin imputed, but righteousness imputed. That's how it was for David too. This is no new religion I'm bringing you. This is the fulfilment of everything that's gone before. These are not new truths and principles I'm bringing to you. This has always been God's way of salvation for his people. Imputation. It's a wonderful word. If you have a limb amputated, I hope you never need to, but if you did have a limb amputated, the amputation removes something that has always been an integral part of you. But now it isn't. You have to say goodbye. Or maybe you can't. Imputation imparts to you something that has never been an integral part of you. Righteousness. You've never been righteous. You've never had righteousness. It's been sin through and through. But a righteousness you've never had is now seen as being your righteousness in Christ by God your Father. It's on that basis that he declares us justified. The language of accountancy is also uh, wrapped up in all of this as Paul is speaking on this, on this topic. Our lawless deeds placing us hopelessly in debt a level of debt we could never hope to repay. The Lord Jesus, in his death on the cross, 
taking my debt upon himself and paying it off in full. My debt transferred to his account. But that on its own, that only brings the balance back to zero and there are no zeros in heaven. But God isn't finished yet. That's only part of my salvation. When I come to God in repentance and faith, there's another transaction that also takes place. A colossal credit balance is paid into my bank account. And I've gone from being hopelessly in debt to overflowing with boundless grace and righteousness in Christ. It's all being God's glorious gift in the Saviour. And that's how Paul wraps up this whole section. At verses 23 to 25. My faith is not the reason God does this. If your faith was the reason God does it, your faith has become something that you've done that he's rewarding. And then it's not grace. It wouldn't be a gift. This would be God God saying, well done you. You've got faith. I'll give you this. You've earned it. Now, the reason God does this is all of himself in compassion and mercy and grace. Faith is the instrument by which we enter into the reality of it. But it itself is not a reason that God does this. God himself gifts us the faith that we may exercise it and come to Christ. Even our faith is his gift of grace to us. Righteousness, an imputed gift of grace, not an earned reward. And Paul won't allow these Jewish men and women, believers or unbelievers, uh, to, to find any other angle by which it can't be that. He's excluding all the options, all the other ways that they might want to view it, they might want to try and understand it. No, says Paul, you can't get round it. It's this and it's this alone. And then third, thirdly, the righteousness of faith. The righteousness of faith. And this is predominantly from verse 9 and through to verse 22. And he walks us through a very simple assessment of the truth. Yes, I know we're talking about Abraham. And that because of that, you have thought that all of the promises given to him only applied to the nation of Israel. Friends, he says, that was never the case. That's your misunderstanding, but that's never what God meant or or what God intended. The righteousness accounted to Abraham was accounted to him by means of faith. And that actually was about 14 years before he was circumcised. Circumcision, which you hold so dear, that was only a sign on his body. It didn't do or produce anything. 
Abraham, verse 11, is the father of those who believe like he did, not of those who get circumcised like he did. And those who will believe in faith as Abraham did, they will get that same righteousness imputed to them as well. This gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is to, well, it's certainly to walk in Christ's footsteps, but actually you can go all the way back to Abraham. This is to walk in Abraham's footsteps too. These are the steps of the faith that Abraham was walking. And circumcision or uncircumcision is irrelevant. The keeping of the law played no part in any of this. Indeed, God didn't give the law to Abraham. In fact, the law came over 400 years later to Moses. The law played no part in Abraham's life in the way that you think it might have done. The law was never part of the promise that God gave to Abraham. The law's never mentioned anywhere. And you can't make law-keeping a condition of that promise retrospectively. Verse 14. You can't give a promise and make a promise and then, years later, add conditions that were never part of the original promise. That just makes a mockery of the promise. And that never happens to any of the promises that God has given. Nowhere does the law or the keeping of it feature in the promises made and given to Abraham. And it's made abundantly clear in Genesis 15 that that great blessing that Abraham had was a gift of God through faith. For another thing, verse 15, since when did the law help us to attain the promise? All the law has ever done is reveal just how sinful we are in our abject failure to keep it and therefore to show us just how just God is in his wrath against us. Without the law, there is no problem of sin, because without the law, there is no law to break. And if there is no problem of sin, well, there is no need of salvation, and I'm just wasting good ink here. If you're driving along Egbeth Road, in front of a police car at 65 miles an hour or you drive through a red traffic light, you can be sure of the result. Why? Because you've broken the law. Because the highway code is written into the law of this land. You are a law breaker. Now, you could have uh, little round signs on Egbeth Road saying 30, you could have traffic lights changing from red to green. But if there was no highway code enshrined in the law of this land, you could drive down Egworth Road however you like. And no policeman can do anything. Why? Because you haven't done anything wrong. There's no law for you to break. So you're not a lawbreaker. So you're not guilty of anything. So there's no reason for them to stop you or arrest you. And this is why we can't just throw the law of God out the window. No, the law was given to show us our sinfulness. 
The law was given to make us aware of our great need of Christ. The law was given to show us just how guilty we are. The law was given to show us just how desperate is our plight and how desperate is our need of what God has provided in Christ Jesus. And getting right with God has always been an issue of grace and faith, verse 16. It's always been of grace and faith. Those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, Jew, Gentile, matters not a jot, circumcised, uncircumcised, doesn't matter. Only faith, believing, trusting faith. That's all that matters. That's all that counts. What was being promised to Abraham all those years ago seemed impossible. A nation from his own offspring. But he's an old man with an old wife, no offence to Sarah, but she was. And they don't even have one child, let alone a nation. But God can give life to old, childless bodies. And God can call forth a nation, speak of it as if it already exists, even when that nation seems to be a complete impossibility. And Abraham believed every single word. That's verses 17 to 19. Abraham believed. And he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, being fully convinced that what God had promised, God was also able to perform. That is saving faith. Therefore, that was accounted to him for righteousness. And Paul concludes from verse 23 that these things were not written all those years ago simply to let us know what happened to Abraham. God was making known his way of salvation, which we find summarised in verses 24 and 25. And again, as I pointed out last week, Paul begins with the theme of imputed righteousness, this total shift in our position from guilt and condemnation to justification before God. How can you or I have this for ourselves? How can we have that which Abraham had? How can we have that which David knew? By believing in him. Him who raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. And why had he, the eternal God, died? He was delivered up, delivered up to the cross, delivered up to death for our offences, stood in your place as your substitute to die the death that you deserve, and then was raised because of our justification. He's a risen, living, victorious Saviour, whose righteousness we receive by faith in him. This one who died, whose death God has accepted as the payment for our sin. This one who died, whose, whose death God 
has accepted as satisfying his justice. He now is seated at the right hand of the Father. His righteousness as the God-man has qualified him to return to heaven. There is no sin in heaven. There is no taint of sin in heaven. God cannot even look upon sin and yet the God-man is sat at his right-hand side without sin. The perfect one received back into glory by his Father. His righteousness as the God-man, it is proven and it is, it's accepted because of where Christ now is. Therein is your great hope and assurance of salvation. That that, uh, that righteousness which is Christ's, which now is yours, will get you to where the Bible says it will get you because Christ is there already. And it's his righteousness which is imputed to you. You can be sure it will do what the Bible says it will do because of where Christ now is. He is your hope. He is your righteousness. He is your glory. That's the life and righteousness of which we, in him, by faith, have become partakers because it's been imputed to us by God's grace. So you can know, you can be assured that where he now is, you too one day will be. Absolutely guaranteed. He is the guarantee. And only him. The only outstanding issue is this one. Do you, through faith, believe?